from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Good morning. Good morning and welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Eastern. Cade Massey hosting this morning with two of my three compadres here, Shane Jensen, fresh in from some Montreal, Canada time, still sporting McGill sweatshirt to show us. Yeah. His I'm Montreal. delighted to be back, though. This is fantastic. Glad to have you. Glad to have you. And Eric Bradlow's back, back from the Atlantic, islands off the coast of the Atlantic. That is true. And uh, first time we've been back together for a while. Audie Weiner's not here. Audie's doing business outside of Philadelphia. He'll be back. We're some combination of us anyway, are here every Wednesday morning, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. You guys can be here, too. Give us a shout. We have open lines for the next two hours. The phone number is 1-844-WHARTON. It's 1-844-942-7866. We do love to hear from you. Feel free to get on the phone and give us a shout. Quick question, long question, whatever you got. You can send us an email, businessradio at cirrusxm.com, businessradio at cirrusxm.com, or hit us up on Twitter, at WMoneyBall is our Twitter account, at WMoneyBall. We follow all of our sports analytics guests. We tweet about the world While of sports While I was analytics. away, though, I was still tweeting a lot. You, you know, these islands have internet, and so I could tweet all <laughs> kinds of stuff. Why aren't we not mentioning these? Are these secret islands? <laughs> no, it was the island of Nantucket. Oh, okay. No, okay, it's not right. a secret island. Because yeah, I was thinking maybe Bahamas Eric's or usual something. August, no, August yeah, getaway. That's a, that's a good place people to be. Are, people are reconvening. I mean, students are. This is they've got they've got Spruce Spruce South Street blocked out over here. Eric moved his son in over here yesterday. Buses aren't running because the kids are back in town, filling up the dorms and apartments around around uh, University of Pennsylvania. This is coming to you from from Huntsman Hall, as usual, business radio studios, looking out onto, onto Locust Walk as we get the fall semester underway again. We have a full show. We are a little bit on a different schedule. Instead of doing open lines in the first half hour and then a guest at the bottom, we're going to flip it. We're going to do a guest in the first half hour. That's because we wanted to talk to this guy, and he's a busy man. So we had to accommodate his schedule. Paul Anacone longtime tennis coach and before that professional tennis player and a previous guest on the show. We're delighted to have you back, Paul. Good morning and welcome to the show. Good morning. Thanks for having me on, guys. Appreciate it. Appreciate you being flexible to my schedule. Well, that's <laughs> nice. I wish you guys talk to my kids about stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, right. We're, pretty helpful. we're free. We're not free for consulting, but we're available for consulting. <laughs> we're available for consulting. Paul, where are you calling in from this morning? Uh, I'm actually uh, in New York getting uh, ready to head on out to the U.S. Open and a uh, big week out there, lots of uh, stuff going on, the qualifying event, and also all the, uh, a lot of the main draw players are out practicing and uh, getting prepared uh, for a big Monday next week when everything starts in the main draw. Is this a week that, that fans can attend and watch? Is that possible? It is, yeah. It, it's free. It's, uh, the gates are open, and uh, you go on out there. and Jeez, um, really? It's a, it's a fun time to kind of wander around and, and see what the players are doing. Um, the week before is always pretty interesting. You you see a lot of different types of preparation, and, and uh, you get to see a lot of the players out there kind of doing other stuff than just uh, playing points. You know, right. Out there with their coaches and, and uh, you know, doing specific things, which for club players is actually – kind of fun to watch because you can see a lot of the stuff that they do is is uh, at a different level but the same kind of relative things to club players so they can learn a few 
few things to bring back home and maybe practice. That's great. I've walked around uh, major golf tournaments in the practice rounds and come away thinking this is actually the way to do it because there, there's so fewer crowds. You can get closer to the action. People are relaxed. It's just a different vibe altogether. Um, what, how would you characterize what's different about the U.S. Open relative to the other majors? And how, do, and how do the professional players think about the U.S. Open relative to the other majors? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I just remember a while ago being asked about um, tennis tournaments in general. And, uh, um, you know, my wife had a great analogy. She's, uh, she's a writer, and, and uh, she said, you know, she said, you guys on the tennis tour are really like a traveling circus. You take the same players to all these different cities all over the world. That's and great. It, and it's it's pretty true. Um, so it's a very close, close-knit, close tight community, both players, umpires, um, governing bodies, etc. cetera. Um, and within that is, is the construct of... Uh, 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 of the events and the four major events are just like people they've got different personalities and the u.s open i mean the best way to sum up the u.s open is the u.s opens new york city mm-hmm. it is excitement um it is passion it's energy mm-hmm. um it is vast uh it, it, it's loud um it is incredibly fan friendly um it's incredibly um um, diverse. You see uh, lots of different folks out there and lots of people having a good time. So mm-hmm. uh, the U.S. Open, look, I grew up on eastern Long Island, so it's got a special place in my heart. Mm-hmm. And uh, every t- this time of year, I-, I come here and first day walking on grounds, I you know I see the big globe on the side of the grounds from the World's Fair back in the day. Mm-hmm. And I get uh, some chills. It's just an amazing place. So, Paul, this is Eric Bradlow. Uh, first of all, thank you for being back on the show. I wanted to ask you a question. Since it's the last major of the year, and we're an analytics show, mm-hmm. how does the data from the year change? It's As opposed to the Australian, which kicks off the year, and people are working in the offseason, maybe you say, well, that's last year's data. The U.S. Open, you have all of this calendar year's tournament data, or the at least the recency of the, the recent data is more relevant, sure. probably for yeah, the U.S. So, Open than the Australian. Yeah. Open. So, from a coach's perspective, an analytics perspective, how do you think about all the data, and would it change the strategy? Maybe you know, we know you're coaching Taylor Fritz now; he's mm-hmm. playing a particular player. Mm-hmm. How would the data affect how you coach, how a player plays, given it's the last major of the year? Right. Well, obviously, now you have a, you, you mentioned it. I mean, you have more cumulative relative data that's up to date um you have a more expansive um kind of net that you've thrown to get to get a broader spectrum of what's happened throughout the year so it's probably when you look at it as a whole all the different data that one would use um it it is more complete when you use the data at the beginning of a year you tend to use it from the entire year before so you still have a broad spectrum but it's after a long training block and it's a kick start to the year so it's a little bit more varied um, but now you know you go into the US Open and I you know I, I in particular would be looking at things that have happened on hard courts in mm-hmm. general throughout mm-hmm. the season so this summer hard court season uh, earlier in Australia and and the spring swing in the states in Miami and Indian Wells, and I'll try to look at things that have happened, patterns that have been created, um, kind of measurable things that certain players have done and do, and um, and then I throw that into the into the hopper of information as you decipher what you want to do, um, both in practice and and. Uh, and in the matches, and, and to be quite honest, most of the practice stuff, the training week, 
Um, this week I'm here with Taylor. Um, it, it isn't. It you know there's there's basically one or two things that are data driven. Um, the rest is mostly driven by philosophy of style of play, um, which is more of a generic topic that I use. A and then you come up with what you want to accomplish based on how that sum the summer has gone. For instance, Taylor's um, won, uh, got to the finals of two tournaments this summer since Wimbledon um, and then had two uh, early losses. So he, for him, for a 21-year-old, he's played a ton of matches. So it's not as important this week for him to play competitive sets. Um, he needs to play some, but it gives me time to do a few things strategically and pattern-wise on the court to try to sharpen up a, a, some areas perhaps that haven't been firing at the highest level where they can be fired. So you, you use the data, you kind of process it through your bucket, bucket of information and figure out how to plug it into what's going to be most relevant based on what the player needs at that uh, particular time. Paul, can you can you break that down for us just a little bit more, make it more concrete, especially for those of us who aren't on top of tennis stats these days, sure. or even what you would what you just referred to as philosophy or style of play. So whether or not it's Taylor, I don't know how much you want to get into Taylor. So we're talking about American Taylor Fritz, who is 21 in the 27 world? right 20, now, 27, yep. 20, 21 years old, 27 in the world. Mm -hmm. So he's your he's your current charge. But so whether or not you're talking about Taylor, tell us what you mean by saying, well, we might grab one or two data points and then we're going to fit it in with a philosophy or a style of play. What do you mean by data points and what what are the possible philosophies or style of play? Sure. I mean, you know, one of the things in analytics, which is really interesting for tennis, is I, I for one, um, try to use them as an ingredient in evaluating what the coaching philosophy should be. I, I think that people that use analytics in isolation, uh, particularly in individual sports, um, kind of there's there's a void that can be missed because there's always a why behind the numbers. Um, and, and if you just look at numbers and don't look at when they happen in matches and what the patterns are that cause and create those numbers, I think you're hurting yourself. So well, that makes a lot of sense, and we and we hear that kind of thing across sports. Mm -hmm. and, yeah, and, and, and I think that's what I try. That's what I try to do. It look, and I've got. I'm lucky. I've got a guy uh, named David Nankin, who's who's Taylor's basically full time coach. That has known him for four, five years now, and he works for the USTA, United States Tennis Association. The USTA has a, a huge database that they. Um, offer for us to review. Now, what I do is I, I look at the different data in terms of, let's say, serve percentage, first serve and second serve locations, where they've been most successful, return mm -hmm. of serve positioning, where you stand, um, direction of ground strokes, percentage cross court versus percentage down the line. Um, things like this, those are, I'm just giving you a couple little generic topics. So David and I will look at those. We plug it into Taylor's game style, how he plays his best tennis. And then we kind of tweak the numbers that maximize what his skill set fits. Um, and so, you know, for instance, for someone that's a, a really good server, that's got a huge serve that needs free points on their serve, that's serving 48%, that's a problem. Mm -hmm. If there's someone that's a great player from the back of the court that's more of a percentage server, what I would do is I would take a look at where the targets are that they're hitting on their serves and how 
offensive they can get on their first hit. And Mm -hmm. I'll take that data and see how specific it is and then set up patterns so that we're practicing those themes uh, throughout the week. Mm -hmm. Um, So so for me, it's about taking the numbers, plugging it into the style of play, and then managing it so it's going to maximize that particular player's style of play. and look, I, I learned this back in the dinosaur days when I played because I I was one of these guys that had a very unique game plan. I used to just come to the net all the time. Mm-hmm. And that's how I got my high ranking. I think I'd be ranked 12 in the world coming to the net um, time and time again. And I had a lot of great people, and I'm talking about historic tennis people, tell me, you know, you, you're doing great, but you just got to work on your ground strokes. You got to work on playing from the back of the court. Right. You got to get more solid back there. And to be quite <laughs> frank, I listened to too many people instead of my brother who was coaching me. And I spent like three, three and a half, four months really working on that stuff. My ranking went from 12 in the world to about 37. Oh, wow. Okay. And I was really frustrated because I was working really hard, but I wasn't working really smart. So mm-hmm. I said to my brother, I said, Steve, what, you know, what, what's the deal? I'm, I'm practicing so hard. I'm doing all this stuff. My ground strokes are getting better. What's happening? And he said you look much better losing now. <laughs> so, That's know, really so, good. So I, it's, it's ironic, and, but it's also really spot on. You have to know what you're trying to do with the player to make it make sense. And, and that's why when I look at all the numbers, I try to make sure I'm keeping in the forefront of my mind what the style of the player is. And with someone like Taylor, who's so young, who's 21, he needs to actually learn even more what his style of play is. So Mm -hmm. a lot of times he'll see a particular player doing well, and he'll say, geez, you know, if I just start doing that, that will help. And I'll say, well, does that fit your game? And he'll be like, well, I can do that really well. And I said, no, no. I said, just tell me five years from now, what style of play is going to get you closest to your potential? Mm Mm-hmm. And then when you answer that, that's how you then set up the blueprint, how the players should try to progress. Mm-hmm. We're talking to Paul Anacone. Paul is a longtime tennis coach. He's worked with Pete Sampras, Tim Hinman, Roger Federer, Sloan Stevens. Currently, he's working with Taylor Fritz. He was also a professional tennis player himself. He won the Australian doubles back in the day, and he reached as high as 12 as a, as a singles player. So a couple things, Paul. You you mentioned that you think people can take these numbers out of context and and – that's something that we see analysts do across sports, and we always want to get better with analytics. And so we love having folks on who appreciate analytics but may not be analysts themselves and may be critical consumers of analytics, which I think I'd put you in that camp. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us – can you give us an example of a tennis number or a stat that's being bounced around that you think can be taken out of context and that when we look to tennis and start thinking about tennis analytics – we can be more careful and nuanced in how we use. Can you give us an example of a stat or two that, that people are kicking around these days? Sure. I'll give you – actually, I'll give you one from way back, which actually, to me, was the first – It was for me, it was the first understanding of what I was doing. Um, in 19 – blah, blah, blah. I'm not going to go back that long because I was just getting off my Tyrannosaurus Rex when I was doing this. Uh-huh. Um, I was coaching Pete Sampras, and we were down in Australia, and I was trying to convince him – he was a great athlete and really tremendous up around the net. But when he was younger, he liked to stay back at the baseline a lot. And so I said, you know, you're so good at taking serves, second serves early and coming to the net and putting instantaneous pressure on your opponent. Um, I, I think it would be a great 
usage of your game style to do it a little bit more. And he said, you know, I understand, but it seems risky. And I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, I could miss the return. Um, I could give the opponent one quick lucky shot to finish the point. And generally, I'm a better athlete. I move better from the back of the court. I can start the point and then find a way to get a forehand to get aggressive. And I said, yes, but if you do this chip and charge play, you'll be setting a tone early, which pays both quantitative and qualitative and cumulative mm. uh, impact throughout the match. Okay? Yeah. Yep. I'm paraphrasing. That's not how I said it to him, but I'm paraphrasing. Yep. And, um, and so he went out and he played a match, and he, and he won this match in a tiebreaker the first set, and then two relatively comfortable sets after right. that. And I said, you know, the, I said, you did great. The first set, you chipped and charged four times. And he looked at me and he goes, I lost all four points. And I said, yes, but you got into the tie break and you got two double faults. Why do you think the guy double faulted? Yeah, right. So you, you have to find the cause and effect. And the guy double faulted because he was nervous about Pete coming forward. Mm-hmm. So those things, if you just take numbers, all it says is 0 for 4 chip and charge. Right. And, and so you have to understand what that does. And another, another um, effect would be someone, uh, you know, when Roger, one of the things we worked on with Roger Federer is using his slice backhand, particularly his slice short backhand. And he used to um, like to try to hit through the court very much. And, and I told him now in lateral tennis with these all-time greats like Novak Djokovic and Andy Murray in particular – um, Rafa Nadal, on occasion, you need to hit the ball short and low to get them moving so- north and south. Oh, interesting. If right. you get them moving north and south and east and west, it's much more difficult to protect four areas, right, instead mm-hmm. of two, side mm-hmm. to side. And so Roger, of course, being kind of the Picasso of the tennis world, is able to understand that really well. And even today, you guys can watch him play Particularly, I mean, he used it against Novak Djokovic quite effectively for two and a half sets in the finals of Wimbledon this year. There's certain players where he specifically hits the ball short and low. And if you look at analytics, a lot of times it will show you, wow, 25% of his backhands, he's hitting too short in the court. So, Paul, let me just, Eric Bradlow again, I, I, now that you brought up Federer and the Djokovic match, I have to ask you about that. <laughs> it was probably one of the most heart, since I'm a huge Federer fan, it was probably one of the most heartbreaking moments of my, I've been watching tennis, I'm 52, I've been mm-hmm. watching it for 55 years, I love <laughs> tennis so much, growing up in New York uh, as well. 8-7, 40-15, two sets all, on the great Roger Federer serve. How titanic a shift is this when I'm thinking about the all-time greats? I'm thinking about Federer would have been at 21. Djokovic Mm -hmm. would have stayed at 15. To me, that was literally could have been the moment where Federer loses the opportunity to be outright the greatest of all time. How titanic was that? How disappointed were you, given you were Federer's coach? I mean, how did you see that? Well, look, I... (laughs) You know, I've got to say, I'm a little bit of a, uh, you know, I'm a little bit of an old school softy. I don't like to see anybody lose matches like that. Right, um, right. And and when you're close to someone like you are with someone like Roger, it, it was pretty. I had a hard time sleeping. So, um, I to me, it was pretty difficult. But just to put it in context, in 2010, in 2011, when I coached Roger, 
both of those years, he had two match points in the semifinals of the U.S. Open against Novak and lost. So oh, two wow. years in a row wow. here in New York. Mm-hmm. So when that happened, I kind of had to put my head down on the commentating desk for a couple minutes to kind of regroup and go, this is, can't happen three times. Wow. So right. it's one of those things. And look, that that is what's so amazing. No matter who you root for in sports, that is what's so incredible about the sporting injur- uh, industry. And to me, that's one of the biggest reasons why I embrace tennis is it's just you. There is no place to hide. I don't right. care how great Tom Brady is, how great LeBron James is. I, I you know, they hold things together, but they got teammates. And in big moments, it's possible that a teammate can help. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> in tennis, there's nowhere to go. And even the man that's won more uh, major titles than anyone in the world is vulnerable. So we saw that. I think the Titanic shift is to be determined. I, I think it's pretty significant. Um, obviously, that's a, a bit of an understatement. But, uh, you know, with what these three have done, Rafa, Roger, and Novak, I don't even know what to expect anymore. I mean, it's never, it's, you know, I feel like I know a decent amount of tennis, but what's happened with these three has been incredible. Um, so I, I think for Novak, it was another one of those moments that shows just how difficult it is to close him out because how great of a returner of serve he mm. is, has. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you guys look on the internet, here's something you might like being the analytics folks. There's a there was right after the event the next day there was a there was a little uh, a tweet someone put out in a side by side screen it showed hit, uh, Roger beating Andy Murray I believe in the finals of Wimbledon and losing that point at forty thirty to Novak and the serve and forehand approach were basically the same play really? and, and Novak made the pass and Andy didn't. But if you look really closely at two things, the location of Roger's serve comparatively mm-hmm. and the ro- location of Roger's forehand approach comparatively, you will see the difference of how missing a target by literally, literally four to six inches means because that's exactly what happened. Jeez. And that's how Novak made the return and the pass. And that's why Andy didn't. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned, yeah, Paul, you mentioned about a player being kind of on his own. One of the topics we wanted to talk to you about, which is one of the controversies in the sport today, is the role of coaching. Mm-hmm. So whether it's within match, which is sure. allowed to happen at certain tournaments, not mm-hmm. the majors, you know, there's the now, without claiming anything, there's the E60 now about the Serena Williams and Patrick Moragalu mm-hmm. incident. There's a whole special on that. Mm-hmm. Do you think there will be a time, and what role do you think that will play if you can actually, you know, not during a point necessarily, right. but like after a game, you can go up to Taylor Fritz and say, start doing this. Does a tennis player have to be on his or her own during a match? And what change do you think that would have to the sport? And would you know, it be sort of like, uh, sorry to interrupt, but yeah. kind of talk about whether it would be kind of, if you could coach during a game like that, would sure. it be mostly on the kind of the strategic mechanical side, or would it be more on the psychological side? Sure. Well, the, the women's tour does it um, on the WTA tour throughout the year, where you can come out once a set. Okay, and uh, they don't do it at the major events because it's a different it's different governance at the at the four Grand Slams, so they don't do it then. So the women's tour does do it. Um, to me, I, I'll answer your first. I'll answer the first part first, which is if, if it were, and I did it a little bit with Sloan Stevens, Sloan's 
Sloan was a lot younger. Um, so most of our conversation, and I knew how much pressure she put on herself. So most of our conversation to me was about keeping her calm and keeping it lighthearted to get her in the right frame of mind. Mm-hmm. And then just a couple little strategic tidbits. I'm not a huge flood the player with information in the heat of battle. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that there's a reason athletes um, are great or not, and a lot of it's because of instinct. And I think you have to keep things simplified and streamlined. And if you know your player, uh, all the components of what that makes them up, then you know which buttons to push and how to do that simplistically. Mm-hmm. That's hypothetically what I would do. Now, the coaching conversation is one that's ongoing throughout the tour. Um, I, for one, am against it. Um, I really don't like it at all. Um, and the reason for that is I think tennis needs to be celebrated because of its individuality. Mm-hmm. I, I think one of the most incredible things, and I've been fortunate enough never to do it in a final, but to walk on center court at the U.S. Open you know, against John McEnroe, to walk on center court at Wimbledon against Stefan Edberg, and I've got to figure it out. I, I've got to, mm-hmm. in those moments of incredible pressure and expectation, it's up to me based on all of my practice, everything my team, my coaches, um, the people around me have taught me to try to problem solve under pressure. I think that needs to be celebrated. Mm-hmm. I, I think that is so unique and so interesting. And it's one of the things as a commentator and as a tennis fan, I look at very closely. I, I watch matches and I look at players in adversity and try to f- see what they are doing to figure out how to be successful. I mm-hmm. think that's amazing. Mm-hmm. And, and mm-hmm. we don't talk about it that much. So when I look at the coaching, and in particular with the coaching you know, that's going on now that the WTA has been trying to do, I don't love it. I, I don't love it. There's, it's very rare where some, something happens where I go, wow, that was incredible. A lot of it is... Um, kind of psychoanalyzing, calming the player down. I think it does a little bit of a disservice to the player, and I think it shows the coaches in that moment generally don't have a ton of time to figure out very measurable things that they can accomplish. Mm -hmm. Um, I understand the concept of, wow, that looks really great on TV, but if you listen closely, (laughs) I'm not so sure... Sounds so great. Yeah, right. It's um, interesting you're that's describing. My, that's my personal opinion. It's a, it's it's a, it's it's very interesting and provocative, and you're you you are highlighting a distinction between tennis and pretty much any other sport. Even the great moments in sports that do that are really you know one on one, man on man. They usually involve at least the possibility of coaches. So like the pitcher, pitcher batter, pitcher you know, in the two outs, bottom of the ninth yeah. kind of thing. Sure. But if they if they if they wanted to, someone can go out there and talk to that pitcher. The the um, golf, golf those guys have their I mean, golf is incredibly pressure mounted yep. at the end of tournaments, they but they have, they got their caddies, and it's so, usually less of a kind of it, it's not always a direct kind of one on one battle. That's almost a one on themselves right. kind of battle. That's yeah. right, that's right. So Paul, but we only got a couple of minutes before you go. We we are curious to hear more about the coaching player relationship, and in tennis, coaches tend to move from one player to the other, and sometimes they're long relationships, sometimes they're shorter relationships. Uh-huh. What can you tell us about? What what determines that dynamic? What what determines whether something lasts for five years or just a couple or ten years? Mm-hmm. And how does it? And how are those transitions? For those of us from the outside are like, man, is that like breaking up with somebody? Is that, <laughs> what is that like? And then you're going to yeah. see him in the dining room afterwards. Sure. How, how do, what is what is that? What is that? What are those relationship dynamics? Yeah, it's it's tricky. And I, and I've been 
through a few of them and and I guess my probably my coaching philosophy is set up in such a way that I'm fortunate because all the players that I the four major players that I've coached are still two four of my closest friends mm-hmm. uh, Sloan I still talk to all the time um, Tim Henman I talk to all the time Roger and Pete Sampras are still two very close people in my life so I, I've got very good um, dynamics with them and I think that's because the way we set up our relationships was very communicative from the beginning you know this is about professional success it's about an interaction between us two and I and, and I think the biggest thing that you have to realize in in a one-on-one relationship sport and coach it is much more complicated than a team sport a team sport first of all usually you're getting paid by the organization not the player mm-hmm. okay individual sport and tennis you're getting the payers playing you paying you to tell them what to do right so you say right. stuff they don't want to hear <laughs> That's pretty challenging. So it's not always what you say to the player. It's can you say it the way the player needs to hear it. And that's a distinct difference. People go in in team sports and they go to the San Antonio Spurs and play under Greg Popovich in his philosophy and his messaging. They go to the New England Patriots to... to, uh, to deal with Belichick, and it's the way he does things. In an right. individual sport, I've got to take the Paul Anacone philosophy and deliver it differently depending on the personality I'm with. Mm-hmm. I, I coach Pete very differently than I coach Roger. Can you give I, us a quick example yeah. of differences in between those? Sure. How do you coach those two guys? Sure. Pete Sampras was someone you needed to be really concise, really clear with, wanted a very short, pithy uh, strategic, technical stuff, boom, and let him go. Mm-hmm. Roger is someone that loved to talk, loved to just discuss things, possibilities. We'd watch more video. We'd talk about more um, things that may or may not happen. It can be elongated. It mm-hmm. can be, you know, for greater periods of time. So he liked that. Tim Henman was somewhere in the beginning. Sloan was much more about how she felt and strategic versus technical stuff. Right. So as a coach, you've got to figure that stuff out. And that those themes are the ones that are dependent on how long the dynamic lasts between the player and the coach yep. and the ability for coach to manage it. So it varies. It's fun. It's challenging. And um, like I said, I love and want to continue to enjoy the individuality of the tennis uh, player. We coaches are just an ingredient, uh, but I sure like being that ingredient can sit up there and watch your player do well. Paul, this is Eric Brother. Maybe one last question. Sure. As the U.S. Open's coming up, when, how long, when do you see anyone on the men's side breaking through the big three? That's what I was going to ask you guys. I mean, I thought that's why I was on. I mean, it's been incredible. I, look, I think it's getting closer and closer. Um, I think the, the, the biggest challenge is, you know, um, it's one thing to play great against a great player. It's another thing to play great for three out of five sets against a great player. Mm-hmm. And you may have to be have multiple to of them. Like you might have to be all three of them. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. And if there was one great player you had to get through – then it's possible when there's three and maybe more to get through three out of five sets and win a major. It is brutal. And right now, Novak Djokovic is, you know, got his nose slightly in front as a favorite to me. Um, 
But I think uh, Rafa's right behind him, and then I think there's a decent drop-off after that. I mm-hmm. think Roger, there's not enough information right now with Roger to know exactly how he's going to be here. I would assume he'll be terrific if he plays his way into the tournament. But, you know, look, I, I think mm-hmm. I'll be surprised if by the end of 2020 we don't have a new name. All right. We don't have a new name on the men's side of one of these major titles. All right. That's exciting. You heard it from Paul Anacombe. Paul, thanks, man. Appreciate your taking the time. We wish you the best with your work and with the tournament over the next few weeks. Thanks, guys. Always a pleasure. Absolutely. Paul Anacone, he's longtime tennis coach, longtime tennis player. He's the author of a book called Coaching for Life. He's also on Twitter. His handle there is at Paul underscore Anacone. Paul Anacone. That has been the first quarter of Wharton Moneyball. We still have three quarters to go. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. From Huntsman Hall, SiriusXM Business Radio Studios. This is Cade Massey. Faculty here at the University of Pennsylvania with two of my faculty colleagues, longtime Wharton Moneyball collaborator Shane Jensen to my right, Eric Bradlow to my left. Audie Weiner will be back in the future. Some combination of us are here every Wednesday morning. You guys can jump in, 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866 or drop us an email, businessradio at com. Hit us up on Twitter at WMoneyball is our handle there at WMoneyball. We're always happy to hear from folks that way. We are just off the phone with Paul Anacone, longtime tennis coach, tennis analyst, and tennis player. And I'm curious what you guys thought. One thing that jumped out to me that I think is very general across analytics is his reservations about using any stat in isolation, and some stats in particular in isolation, because their effects can be cumulative. And so he used the example of like chip and charge, Pete Sampras chip and charge, even if in the first set he loses all the points on which he chips and charge. It it sets a tone, and in fact, he may generate some benefits like the other guy double faulting because he's worried about Sampras coming in. And so I, the general point that I take there is a big challenge to analytics, and that is often the unit of analysis you want is win or lose a game. Yeah, That's the unit of analysis you care about, and that's the unit of analysis that coaches are working on. And yet... We can't settle for that as our unit of analysis because we need more data. You can't use games, really. And so we end up focusing much more granularly on plays and points. And we can over-extrapolate the meaning of the plays and points if we don't see the consequence, the indirect long-term consequences of some of those things. And I, and I think probably tennis, I, I mean, I think certain sports, we kind of understand that a little bit more intuitively just kind of our experience watching. Like in football, when somebody runs a running play, on first down, and it goes for like two or three yards. You're, you know, so a very casual person, you know, like my wife watching the play is like, well, why did they bother doing that? They should have just thrown it like twenty yards down the field or whatever. But Shane, you know, this is the this is the zeitgeist on football analytics right now is that people run the ball too much. They do, first. but you do have. I, I mean, I think. Uh, it's understood in football that you have to have a variety it's not, of things. But it's not to, understood quantitatively. We don't have a model of it. And so, no, and that's so true. it's easy that's for analysts true. to get it wrong to say, because you know, it's not an equilibrium model. Equilibrium needs, you have to no, consider and, the whole game. But, but I, I guess what my point is, I think it's more, it would be more understood. Like, it's more obvious to us that. You know, analyzing every single play in football in isolation is not the right way to move. Do. But that's what we do. That's absolutely 100% what we're doing. 
That's absolutely well, what we're doing. Right I don't now. think so. I don't. A I mean, of, a lot of folks are, and it's hard not to. For you to, did, how do we decide what the right amount of running to do is in various situations? You tell me how to do that analysis if we're going well, so, to consider uh, the dynamics. The well, I'll give you an example. I'll yeah. give you an example to answer that question. So let's imagine instead of characterizing a situation, this is what I do in many statistical problems, instead of saying, so what should I do on second and five? Okay. Well, the problem is you're ignoring a lot of things. Second and five. All right. All right here's a bunch of things you could condition on. How much time is left in the game? How successful have my running and passing plays been so far? What defense is it? So I'm saying you can break this logjam of analytics by saying you focus on the individual play by conditioning on a lot more information because then you bring that in context. Think about a model. You have Y, which is the outcome. I'm not saying you can do it perfectly because there's too many X's, if you'd like, to condition on. And that leads to sparse data, leads to other kinds of problems. But you can do more than just say, what would you do second and five? I I I guess I'd paraphrase maybe case what is... When you're doing that condition, when you're kind of trying to evaluate that optimal decision, it's not just kind of conditioning on the data that you've already seen, the past data. You actually have to kind of try and incorporate the strategic, like the kind of like what does these different schemes do for the cumulative effect for winning the game going forward, like in the future as well. Right. And that is a difficult modeling endeavor, but I feel like we actually understand that as the correct modeling endeavor more in football than, say, tennis. I don't think we, as a community, I don't think we do. And I think the community is very good good at what Eric is talking about, which is contextualizing and, and breaking down into, into detailed situations and situ, situ, you know, situational football, basically. I think we're getting very good at that. And th- one of the reasons we need to be able to address this big picture strategy question is because the, those who have reservations about analytics, their reservations often go in this direction. And their arguments often have this flavor, which mm-hmm. is, you know, I'm running to set up the pass, or I'm running to control the line of scrimmage, or I'm running to control the clock, all of these kinds of longer-term strategic things. I'm not necessarily saying they're right. I'm just saying we are not. We don't have the framework right I have now. A framework. I've, I've had a framework, just a suggestion. We should get, I'll tell you why, exactly what you're describing, Cade, is what economists do in what's called a Bellman equation. So I run a play today, and it puts me in a different state. Now, I'm going to choose the play today knowing that I'm going to be in a different state after this play, and I'm maximizing my expected outcome over, in their case, economists think of it as an infinite time horizon. I'm sure if, but wait, what I just described is the framework of every economist that does empirical work on every problem. It's called a Bellman equation. It's, I don't maximize my contemporaneous utility. I maximize the decision that maximizes the current utility plus the fact that it's going to put me in a new state. I guarantee you if we get an economist on who studies football, he'll talk about the use of a Bellman equation to actually, again, maximize outcomes. As far as I'm concerned, the original paper in football analytics, like it's not the original because it, it, yeah. it there were other generations, but the first like serious, well-published football analytics paper was from David Romer about fourth downs, and it was in the early 2000s. Yep. I don't think he published it under this title, but the working title, the working title of his paper, maybe it's published on this side, but the working title of the paper is, it's fourth down of what does the Bellman equation That's it. say? And I notice it says NBR, industrial organization. This is what industrial organization economists do. You don't maximize the current utility. You recognize that there's going to be a future stream, and okay, you put the, yourself... Yeah, okay, I just okay, think, I think, the trouble with this is you have to have a model for how people are going to respond yeah. to what you're doing. And these and, guys, and, you don't... We 
we don't have a model across all the dimensions of football. No, it, uh, yeah, I was going to say that that I, I think that's the right framework to yeah, use. Yeah, I was just pushing word. back. I that we didn't have a framework. We this is the for framework. More general football plays and schemes. It's just incredibly difficult to do that kind of modeling of Agreed. what 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 the future is going to kind of bring in terms of given that there is a response from another team, well, etc. Uh, just to use one more term from economics. What you have to do then, what every I'm sure when I re, I will now read David's original paper, he's going to have the term I guarantee you in here called rational expectations. I have to have a <laughs> rational expectation belief of what my opponent is going to do, and I'm going to build a model that not only predicts what's going to happen on this play, but what my opponent's response will be right. to that. That's I have to say it. Every empirical industrial I.O. paper I, I, is of this I, I, form. Agreed, but it's always going to be some reduced form thing I, where I, the action space is I didn't is say very... the problem was easy. I just <laughs> said there is a <laughs> no. framework yeah. to think and, about and, but it. I, and I think you know this discussion is probably kind of somewhat, somewhat clarifying why this hasn't been done as much in football. Is that right. I think this framework, if you were to explain it to somebody, would be the coach would be like, oh, yeah, that's about as close to a kind of – I guess mathemat, you know, kind of a, a way of str- uh, describing my thought process as possible. It's just incredibly hard to actually do that. Again, I, 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 I agree entirely. So, by the way, I mean, one direction you might take, if you want the game at, as a unit of analysis, you might think about simulations. Mm-hmm. But Agreed. again, you have to have you have to have a, a strategy space that's sufficiently rich to capture all that. Or at least and, the, and, the important and, and, and I stuff. think ideally, if we were going simulations, you'd have kind of a, a modeling space rich enough. To take into not necessarily always a rational kind of response and oh, stuff no, like absolutely. that because I think that's right. That's too. I, I think I think most NFL coaches, if you kind of sold them this model where it's like, oh, and I'm going to expect you know built into this model is that your opponent always does the optimal right. or rational right. thing. If you expect them to play Romer, yeah. then you're going to make yeah. very bad decisions. But guys, something I just learned, I mean, like last night, is that there are a bunch of folks in the sports gambling world who are simulating football games like that's where football analytics is going and they're not just doing it in kind of an ea sports kind of way you know those guys have hundreds of millions of dollars to invest in huge staff and years of building the things up we're talking about smaller groups in las vegas or wherever they are but i understand that they're simulating at the block level like is this defensive end going to get around that offensive mm-hmm. tackle? Like that's the wow. level of granularity in these simulations, and they're doing it for the entire football game. That's when you think about how your football models are going to do in the market. You have to understand that there are folks out there with those kinds of football models, and they're learning because their livelihood depends on it. Are out there setting 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 prices in many cases. Look, my favorite lecture that I give in the MBA core is the one where I talk about how do you set optimal marketing and what people always do. You'll see the relationship in a second. They build a mathematical model for how does sales change the function of marketing expenditure. And then I say, so where's your model of what competition's going to do? And they're like, what? Mm-hmm. And I said, well, what, you think you're going to spend a million dollars? You're going to gain market share? And your competition is going to say, well, I guess the Massey Corporation just gained 4% market share. Right, right. So we have a one-hour discussion just about how do you model competitive mm-hmm. reaction mm-hmm. and how do you think about it? It's the hardest problem, in my view, that we face when we're trying to solve these problems because yeah. football is not in isolation. Let me do my optimal and assume the competitor is going to do this. That's. But let me just say, there's a framework, and I try to teach them the framework, and then it's hard to actually apply. That, that's what's a, it's an easy framework to do if it's a one-dimensional kind of decision and response but, thing. But now we've got a highly dimensional but, thing. But I just want to note real quickly that Stephen Strogatz was on our show last week. He's a he's a mathematician, but also kind of a complexity guy. Studies complexity, and and doesn't do sports. So we ask him, look, what would you do if you 
we're trying to understand higher order interactions in football. Like how much does the offensive line affect the receiver's play dependent on the quarterback, that kind of thing. He's like, have you considered agent-based simulation? Like this is what, mm-hmm. this is what those guys do. And, yeah. you know, and, and people have modeled markets that way. And again, it's a really nice idea, but a, your strategy space needs to be pretty, pretty low dimensional. I mean, you know, guys. I mean, I'm sure you know this. I mean, Strogatz, I believe, was Duncan Watts's advisor. That's right. And so Strogatz and Watts is. I mean, you guys covered this last week. I'm sure is the most famous paper on dynamics and network diffusion that yep. there is. Yep. And so it, it's he. Had, that's a very interesting perspective. So we've only got a few minutes now heading into our halftime break but we haven't talked about what you're caught what caught your hands in the world of sports so i i wrote a bunch of things and I'm, i called it interesting math and you'll see what i mean in a second which of the following two numbers and you'll see it's all about sports which of the following two numbers is bigger two-thirds or three-fifths two-thirds correct mm-hmm. but not in tennis and let me say what i mean by that so in most tournaments except for the majors guys play best of three okay Matter of fact, a Masters 1000 event just happened, Cincinnati Masters. It's, a, it's the second-tier event after the majors. Daniel Medvedev won the tournament, beating Novak Djokovic in the semis on the way. He beat David Goffin in the finals. Medvedev is 3-0 and in his career against Djokovic in best-of-three matches yeah. and 0-5 in five-set right. matches. Yeah. So that's when I say two out of three is less than three out of five. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You maybe you can beat Novak. He's never lost to Novak yeah. in a three set match, and he's never beaten him in a five set match. So this gets exactly to what Paul Anacone was saying to me. That was a funny math thing. Of course, two thirds yeah, is yeah, greater yeah, than yeah. three fifths, yeah. but it's not in tennis. R- R- by the way, just that reminds me of Brooks Kepka and golf, where Kepka is just the most remarkable majors player and kind of doesn't care about the other tournaments. Do we know anything about the extent to which Djokovic cares about non major tournaments? It's not your point, but I'm curious. I have no idea. Yeah. I think are they just gear us up for the majors, or does he actually have a real? Kinda... I think just from what I can tell, he cares about every match he plays. I think he does care because I think he also feels it gives him a psychological advantage when he plays the player when it really matters the most. Uh, yeah, I think he cares. I don't think he was happy to lose for Med- to Medvedev, who, by the way. This is an up-and-coming player, guys, 23 years old. I think he's somewhere around 10 or 11 in the world right now. Why couldn't he... He could be it. He could be it. He could be that guy. He could be the guy. Here's another one. Do you agree that 1-6 does not equal zero? Right? (laughs) Most times. Right. But it does in football. And this is why. So Jimmy Garoppolo, the man who could never be beaten... Came back, you know, he's coming back yeah, to me. So remind, remind us for who don't worship at the altar of the Patriots who grew up. So he was the backup quarterback for the Patriots. He then got um, the San Francisco 40- Oh, no, no, it was significant because he was there when Brady was hurt. Yeah, right? he played a couple games during Brady. Well, no, it's during Brady's suspension. Suspension. Yeah, yeah. During um, deflate, right? It looked very impressive. Never was ended beaten. up in San Francisco. Won his Didn't first, lose a game for San Francisco first, in his first season. Right. First five. Was, at one point, he was like 9 0. He was okay. never been beaten. Okay. Then he was beaten a couple times, but still impressive. He was beaten. Let's not do this thing where the quarterbacks determine the outcome. The team the was beaten okay. with him starting. All right. And. <laughs> However, he did start his first game. It's the preseason, I understand. This is what I want to ask you about. His, here's his stats. He oh, was one out of six with an interception. His QBR was zero. That's what I meant by one six does not equal zero. If you're the San Francisco 49ers, are you at all concerned that Jimmy Garoppolo played four drives in a preseason game, was one for six with a QBR of zero, 
and the regular season is starting in two weeks. Does it mean are, anything are, are to you? you? Uh, let me a- answer yeah. your question with a question. Are you, if you're a Giants fan, do you start Daniel, Daniel Jones out of the gate? What an impressive preseason he had. <laughs> yeah, so it's a different issue. So let me well, just... I mean, it no, is, no, it's, Well, no, the reason it's I'm saying it's asymmetric. It's related for, under the, does the preseason matter yeah. at all? So one of my my question, I agree entirely with Shane's. Yeah. I get his point. Now it's, it's not like he, it's a point in the guise of a question, but my question about Garoppolo is: Do we have any other reason to doubt him right now? Is he injured? Well, he's coming back from a major ending. I mean, he missed the last ten games but, of last season. But do ACL, we know how he's been ACL. performing this summer? I mean, do we? Do we have? Any- no, he was. Uh, he, he. We also do know. I coach, think I, in practice he threw. I think there was something. I, I think that popped up on social media. In, in a practice, he threw five straight interceptions. Yeah. See, this is the thing. We've got they. they if I'm the coach, you ask me to yeah. react as a coach. They have a lot of information about his condition and how he's been looking on the practice field, and that would. I don't think there's influence. any signs that uh, it's only disconcerting signs for Jimmy Garoppolo right now, Okay. other than the kind of, that it's a small sample is it size. Too, is it too soon for them to expect him to be performing back at the top of his game? Well, that I was mean, my question. Possibly, yeah. That was my whole question when I was saying one sixth equals zero. Like, should they start, at some point, they, should they start to be concerned that it's going to take him longer than next two weeks to get yeah. back. And, of course, I'm hoping that because the 49ers are at the Buccaneers the opening game of the remind, season. Remind so I'm really what, hoping. What, game, what game of the watching. season was, did he... Uh, was it the first? It wasn't. It was pretty early in the season that he had the ACL injury. Five games, last year. I think, roughly five games in. He okay. missed the last ten or eleven games okay. of the season. So here's another one, just quickly. Which of the following two numbers is bigger, thirteen or thirty? Thirty. <laughs> um, thirty. Right. Well, here's we need what, to save some of these for the over under segment. No, no, so these can, aren't over unders. But here's <laughs> no. But this is about ranking systems, which we talk about a lot on the show. Tiger Woods is ranked thirteenth in the world. He's ranked thirteenth in the world. But he's not in the final 30 of the FedEx tournament that's taking place this week because they have two very different ranking systems. So how fair is it? Fair is maybe not the right word, but it's the word that comes to mind. Are you at all concerned that the FedEx Cup system that determines who's in the final 30 is so different than the world ranking system where the number 13 player in the world is not even in the top 30 of the FedEx. So is, shouldn't does, somebody look at the difference between these ranking systems? Does FedEx pretend to have the thirteen, the 30 best? Or no. Or they, they have some other criteria? It's like how you've done, you, you're, you're qualifying. You, yeah, it's purely, there's points no. on a certain. Yeah. That's, like saying, that's like saying we don't care who wins the playoff games because we know from power rankings that the best two teams are the Patriots and the whoever. Mm-hmm. Like no, there's a there's a there's a, a route set up here, and you have to jump over hoops and beat other people, and whoever ends up on the other side, we don't care what the numbers say. I wasn't saying it. W- I was just saying it seems strange to me that you'd have two different systems that their their federation uses, to, and they promote both of them. Okay, and they're so different that someone they, could be. They 13- must have different objectives. That's if it's the same federation. Or, it or, is. Or, or, I mean, they, they, I mean, these may, are published may, by the golf association. Maybe there's not explicitly set different objectives, but there obviously are implicit different, yeah. you know, kind of objectives to that. And I mean, I guess if, if you're, if you're kind of framing this as a call to action, it would be looking at what specific component of the FedEx kind of point system Somebody like Tiger, like like, is it just because he does not have the amount of cumulative sort but, of but like? Maybe the world you know, rankings aren't any good. You're I mean, right. We don't know whether the world well, rankings. That's, I, are any yeah, good. I was yeah. not saying. But well, we don't even know what their objective is. Right. Right. Is it to try to? I mean, if we had rankings, what our objective would probably be is how are they going to perform this week? Just, just one quick thing: winning the Masters 
was worth a third the number of points of winning last week's BMW Championship, which is part of this FedEx end of year funny money. Yeah. So winning the Masters got gets well, okay. you six hundred I mean, points. It, it, it and like the BMW. Pro- it sounds like they've got a promotional objective. That probably <laughs> I'm just has saying, three, yeah. thirteen is not the same yeah. as thirty. That okay. was all Agreed. I was saying. On, on the Tiger Agreed. Woods front, Eric Bradlow, should he pick himself for the Presidents Cup? So Woods is the captain of the Presidents Cup U.S. side. Captains get a certain number of picks, and the Presidents and the Riders Cup. Eight qualify eight, automatically. He gets four picks. Eight have qualified. Four are up to him, and there's a long list of people who are vying for this. So should he pick himself? The the reason I would say yes oh my would be the following. Let me say why. Well, first <laughs> of all, has that ever happened? That's the most predictable response. Yeah. Let me say why I'd say yes. I'm going to use Paul Anacone's word. Contextual. His record in singles <laughs> match play is something like... Hold on. We're talking about the 80s? Are we talking about the 80s, Eric? No, his overall <laughs> record. Right. I know, but there's like distant past. He's an old man now. We can't talk about his lifetime singles record. Well, I want to hear relevant. his record, and then we can kind of try I'm and picking, figure I'm You asked me a question. Yeah. You can ask someone else then. <laughs> what is his record? It's like, like just in terms of it's, like... It's, he's got an incredible singles record. I mean, I mean, last time I looked, it was something like 14 wins, four live losses, three yeah. times. And then tell us about his paired his paired competitions and how well he gets along with his par- partners. Well, that doesn't seem to go very well. <laughs> All right, fellas. That has been the first half of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a half to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of Sports Analytics Live every Wednesday morning, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Eastern. Cade Massey hosting this morning with Eric Bradlow and Shane Jensen. You guys can jump in here. We wish you would jump in here. Give us a shout, one eight four four wharton That's one 942 By the way, we just heard at the end of that last segment from Margie from Mississippi, one of our longtime Listeners, longtime callers, one of our favorite people to hear from. Margie, though, she's only calling in these days when it's Southern Miss relevant. She's in here pitching Nick Mullins. Forget Garoppolo. Go with the backup. Yeah. Mullins look good. I mean, Mullins, do- I, Mullins is definitely like the top half of backup quarterbacks. But so. she only cares because he's Southern Miss. I mean, she's like a Southern Miss person. Yeah, good. He- she had some good games last year. I, I'm, 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 you know, I'm, 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 I'm rooting for Garoppolo to start game one against the Bucks. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just giving Margie a hard time. We love hearing from Margie. Give us a shout more often. We've got college football coming up, man. We need oh, calls so from Mississippi. Oh, it's so exciting to just have more football in our lives in general. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So you guys, calling in is not the only way to reach out. You can email us. Email us at businessradio.com, businessradio at com, Or hit us up on Twitter at WMoneyBall. Is our handler at W Moneyball? Good way to stay on top of the world of sports analytics. Going in to the next segment, we have another guest. We're delighted to have Greg Cosell back with us. I think we talked with him about this time last year. Greg is senior producer for NFL Films. He worked for 38 years as executive producer and analyst for ESPN's NFL Matchup. No, the, the NFL Films is where he's been for 30 years. Long time, a, a real institution with a, a phenomenal contribution to the world of football, NFL Films. He's been there for 38 years. And he's also a producer, executive producer and analyst of ESPN's NFL matchup. Greg, welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. 
Kate, actually, I just hit my 40th year here. At Did you? Oh, really? Oh, congratulations. Yeah. That is so cool. I mean, all of us were, I mean, all of us, our generation anyway, were just raised on yeah. the NFL. And it's almost like the dawn of instant replay. So these highlights were just new to us. And I think one of the reasons we care so much about football is because of freaking NFL fans. I, I was just kind of thinking in my mind, the amount of NFL, like the amount of things, uh, time that I've watched stuff that you've produced. I'm not even sure. <laughs> you might be up there with like Dick Wolf and Law and Order or something like that in terms of like, you know. Yeah. Yeah, but I don't look as good as Mariska Hargitay. <laughs> That's why you're behind the behind the yeah, cameras so, and, the, know, and the editing I got desk. A face for radio. That's right, Greg. Where are you calling in from this morning? I'm actually at my desk at NFL Films in Mount Laurel, New Jersey. Mount Laurel, New Jersey. All right. I Not think far from you guys. Well, we're happy to have you in studio. So we can if we can rip you away from your desk sometime. We'd love to have you in studio. It's always fun to have folks here live. If you're ever interested or make well, it we around, we can do that. I, do, you, do you go all year round? We do. It's always yeah, Wednesday mornings, but we go all year round. And it would have to be more in the summertime. You know, now now I'm basically in in, in season mode. Well, I remember that from last August. And but by, by the way, I mean. Put us on the list. Plan a hop over here to Philly on some Wednesday. Whenever you're around, we'll take you any Wednesday of the year, so summer or not. But I understand. I, I remember talking to you last year about what you're what you're doing right now. And you're like, I'm looking at film. What do you think I'm doing? I'm looking at film right now. So tell us, like, what will your day look like? You've got some. I mean, we're all watching a little preseason football. We're ready for the real stuff to start in a few weeks. What film are you looking at right now? And for what well, I've got to watch a bunch of preseason football as well okay. uh, for a number of reasons. Obviously, there's new players, uh, new coaches, so I have to go through a lot of that. Uh, in, in the name of full disclosure, I, I don't make it through all four quarters watching the coaching tape of the preseason games, but, <laughs> right. uh, but I do have to watch you know, a, a good amount of it. Uh, we're now starting to prepare hard for our first NFL matchup show, which airs the first weekend of the regular season, okay. but... Uh, uh, we try not to use preseason footage if we can avoid it. Right. Sometimes we can't, depending on, you know, let's say the Redskins named Dwayne Haskins the starting quarterback and they play the Eagles week one. You know, we'll try to make a decision. Do we need to see Dwayne Haskins? You know, we, we try to make those kinds of decisions. Yep. But for the most part, you know, I spend a lot of my summer, particularly even when I'm on vacation because I didn't go anywhere this year, I'll come in and I'll just grind through uh individual players, you know, team concepts, because during the season, it's hard for me to watch one team, let's say, five games in a row. Yep. And, and when you do that with some perspective after the season has ended for three, four months, and I do that in June or July, I get a, a almost a different feel for a team. So let's say I studied Dak Prescott hard this offseason okay. because I knew he'd be a polarizing player and I knew the contract situation yep. and I'd get asked about him a lot. So I ended up watching something like seven games in a row beginning, you know, like week 10 or 11, you know, down the stretch. So tell us and, about that. What, and, what did you, you know, you get a different feel when you watch it all back to back to back to back. I can it, imagine. It, you know, that, that, that changes, that can change your perspective. So where did you end up on Prescott? Uh, you know, I think Prescott is one of those guys that's a solid quarterback that needs work in certain areas. He's he's a very cautious player. Now, I don't know if he was coached to be a cautious player because essentially the way the team has been built was uh, through – Ezekiel Elliott being right. the main, uh, you know, the driving force of the offense, and they have a very good defense. So they, they play to their run game, which shortens games because the clock runs, yep. allows their defense to be better because they're playing fewer snaps. Um, 
So I think that there are some areas in which he needs improvement. He leaves Zach because he's cautious tends to leave throws on the field, and what we mean by that is there's throws that are there based on the design of the route concept versus the coverage, and he doesn't pull the trigger. Wow. Uh, you know, he's not an aggressive thrower, okay. so only he could tell you what he sees. I can't tell you what he sees, but. You know, he's not one of those guys that is aggressive turning the ball loose, but he could be coached that way. Well, talk, talk a little bit about what you've seen in terms of how quarterbacks develop. You said he's got some things he needs to work on. He's been in the league a few years now. This will be and his fourth season. Fourth season. Still, still young, and, and, and my understanding is quarterback performance peaks you know, a number of years after this, something like age 29. But we tend to reach conclusions about quarterbacks pretty quickly. We'll grant them a year, maybe, but right. then, and, and maybe not even that. But we're, we, we, we think of them, I think, as more fixed than they actually are. But you see these guys over the years. How much development do you actually see well, in these guys? I think you have to make a determination as to what can be coached and what can't be coached. Because, obviously, no one comes into the NFL at any position. It's just more visible as quarterback as a finished product. Right. So then you have to decide, okay, what can be coached. So, in other words, when I see Dak Prescott being cautious, uh, I try to think in my head, well, is that in his DNA or is that something he was coached? Hey, you know, I'd rather you you throw the four-yard check down and, uh, because we just don't want you to be aggressive and potentially turn it over given the way we're choosing to play as an entire team. I don't know the answer to that. Yep. Um, I know that when I evaluate quarterbacks, particularly when they're coming out of college to the NFL, I personally see being aggressive as, as a positive. Right. I think it's easier to channel a guy down right. as opposed to, you know, make a guy become more aggressive. So, yep. you know, I don't want to – I'm not defining Dak because I don't know the answer to this. And, and I guarantee with John Kitna there as the offensive coordinator, because John Kitna has experience with Mike Martz, and Mike Martz wanted his quarterbacks to be aggressive. And there was actually a great story that made the rounds on Twitter about a month ago about John Kitna telling a story t- to the team about uh, a particular situation with Martz and about being aggressive versus being cautious. Mm-hmm. So. I think they're probably trying to work with Dak in that regard, and then we don't know how it'll turn out. Uh, you, you know, again, my personal opinion, based on nothing, is <laughs> I think that Jerry Jones has probably made the decision that Dak will be the guy he pays, and Zeke will not be the, the guy he mm-hmm. pays. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, you know, I don't have a problem with that decision. It's not a matter of where Dak stands in the quarterback pantheon right now. It's just the fact that if you don't have Dak and your backups are not very good, you're kind of in trouble. Yeah, and I mean, I think it also speaks to kind of the scarcity of kind of, yeah, I mean, because you described Dak as, you know, I mean, perhaps not a, a polished product, but he is certainly yeah. average to above average quarterback, and that is just so much more, seen as so much more valuable than, than a, an average or above average running back. Without question. Um, now, again, their team has been built around Zeke, but I think that Jerry Jones, in his mind, feel right or wrong that it's that Dak is ready to make that move to be, and I hate this term because it means almost nothing, but Dak is ready to be elite, whatever that means. But I think that's the way Jerry thinks, right or wrong, mm-hmm. and I think that that's the direction in which they'll go. Um, they'll probably, I don't know, they just signed Jalen Smith. Um, I don't know if they can sign Dak, Zeke, and Amari Cooper, and then they've got Byron Jones coming up, who also plays a premium position corner. So I don't know if they can pay all four guys top money for their positions in the league. Uh, you know, I don't study the salary cap hard, but 
you know, at the end of the day, Dak's going to be a cowboy, and he will get signed, and he will probably get signed for a lot of money. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Greg, you're talking about Zeke and whether they pay him. It goes into this big conversation that's going on right now about the value of running yeah. backs. And, of course, the analytics community has been pretty outspoken about this. And, in fact, there's recent articles not only on the lack of value or differentiation for the running game, but also the lack of value even in, in the way running backs are used in the passing game. One of the reasons we love talking to you is because you're going to push us some and challenge us on what the analytics community is getting wrong or what they're missing based on your more holistic view of things. What is your well, position on this conversation about running backs? Well, you know, it's a tough question, and, and I get the argument that they're not that valuable. Um, I think it all depends on how you want to structure your team. Uh, you know, again, I think the Cowboys will probably make a subtle change in how they play offense. Uh, but I think that if you're going to build your team, build your team around the run game. And, and when I say build your team, I mean where the running back is clearly the starting point of everything you do in terms of, of giving him the ball. Now, there, you can differentiate here between a lot of things like Todd Gurley for instance a couple of years ago when he had the great year he's a good back I don't think by the way he's a great back but Todd Gurley I don't think the Rams even though he was the back were built on Gurley Mm -hmm. I think they were built on a concept of of stretch run action and that stretch run action really benefited everything they did offensively in particularly the passing game. Mm-hmm. So I think Gurley was a piece of an offense that was conceptually structured. Do you understand? Sure. I'm, well, I'm I mean, just to be clear kind of... here in what I'm saying. You know, I think that the Cowboys were different. I think that the Cowboys were actually built around handing the ball to Zeke Elliott. Right. And so the question becomes, are there 15 guys who could do that? I mean, go back to the Seattle Seahawks when Marshawn Lynch was there. Okay, so Marshawn Lynch left. And then for a number of years, until last year, when they did get very good production in the run game, they struggled to run the ball. Okay, now I'm not going to sit here and tell you that Chris Carson is physically as good a runner as Marshawn Lynch, but they struggled a bit. And as good as Russell Wilson was and is, they had a lot of games through those years where their offensive production was not very good at all. And so... You know, it's. I don't know if there's one answer to this. The people are very entrenched in their opinion, particularly yeah. the ones who believe that the running back is is you know basically uh, just a commodity, and you could put anybody back there. Yeah, and it, it, that's kind of the view of the analytics community, correct? Yeah, uh, yes, undoubtedly, and the the and the dialogue is 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 high level right now. I mean, high volume. Right yeah, and, and and by the way, it's like anything. Smart, reasonable people can disagree. There's arguments on both sides. Mm-hmm. Um, some. Some of the arguments are, are um, uh, you know, quantitative, and some are uh, are just subjective, where you can discuss it, you know, as as kind of an opinion. Mm-hmm. And and uh, and if if the people are smart, the opinions mean something. So. Uh, you know, it's a hard question to answer. Uh, you know, w- once numbers start getting involved, you know, you can always look at numbers, and and they're hard to refute. But. Uh, you know, I, I don't. I'm not sure where I stand on that because okay. I think it depends on your team. So, Greg, uh, this is Eric Bradlow. Let me ask you a question about the role of analytics in your job. Right. Do you guys use analytics to decide what film to watch 
because there's you could watch an infinite amount of film, but analytics could say, here's the high leverage plays. Here are the most diagnostic plays. Here are the plays that show the performer at his peak. Do you use does NFL films use analytics to decide what to put in the tape to show you or that people well, watch? I guess my response to that would be is I and maybe I should know the answer to this, is I'm not sure what the definition these days of analytics is. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. You know, I mean, I, I, my focus is always watching the tape. Mm-hmm. And when there's 22 guys on each plane moving, there's so many variables that it's hard for me to make definitive um, judgments. You know, I guess we discussed this last year. Analytics ends up being based mostly, and you guys tell me if I'm wrong, this is what you guys do. Analytics tends to be based on results, Correct. Uh, it varies. It varies. So it, certainly that's one approach to ask what happened on this play and, and just and work with that. But we're, increasingly, I'm, analytics is looking at process measures. See, and that's what I'm all about, process. Yeah, yeah. So, well, absolutely. even, Greg, just breaking to what you were saying about um, Dak Prescott, advanced stats now can say, here were the degree of separation of the receivers. Yeah. Here's the expected yards he would have gained had yeah. he gone to one of these other receivers. Here's the what the play he actually threw and right. ran. So now it's not just about the outcome. It's, right. as you described, Greg, here are the other potential it's, outcomes. Yeah, it's that it's could trying have to quantify kind of question. what you were saying earlier about, like, he leaves throws on the field. Well, let me trying ask you to a question. That. To know that, you would have to know what the route concept is. Mm-hmm. You would have to know the call of the play. You would have to understand where he should be going going with the ball based on the route concept versus the coverage, you'd have to know a lot of things that maybe you know or you may not know, okay? And I'm not saying – this is not a question of who's smart or you – know, you may not know this stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And just like separation to me is subjective – pass rush, you know, when they when I see a, a stat about, here's how a quarterback d- throws does under pressure. Under pressure is totally subjective to me. I mean, you could sit and watch tape with me, and you could see a pass rusher that's near the quarterback, and you could think, well, that's pressure. And I could tell you, in my, in my view, in the NFL, that's not pressure at all. That's so, interesting. So a lot of that, that's why, to me, when I see a lot of things like that, you know, I, I it's not that I think people are wrong. It's not a matter of being right or wrong. I just don't know what to make of it. You right. know, so it's for me, that kind of stuff is not that valuable because I, you know, I, I trust the fact that I, I've been doing this for a long time. I've had a lot of conversations with coaches over the years. I was really fortunate to know Bill Walsh well. He taught me the quarterback position. So you know, I trust what I see, which doesn't mean that analytics has no value to me. Anything that gives you more information is better than things that give you less information. But I just, you know, I have to differentiate sometimes because separation. What is what is one's view of separation? You know, we could sit here and watch film, and we might disagree on what separation means for a receiver. Mm-hmm. So, Greg, we're talking to Greg Cosell. He's senior producer for NFL Films. He's been there for 40 years now. He's also executive producer and analyst for ESPN's NFL Matchup, second-time guest on the show. We love talking with him about film. What what I would say as an analyst is that we need these communities talking to each other because both are going to be imperfect in some way, and if they're in dialogue, those can offset each other. So the analytics guys would sit down with you and say, hey, using next-gen stats, these are the separation numbers we're seeing on some receivers, and you could go through some film with you, and, and, and and you could say, well, you're missing this or you're missing that, and then you go back and you improve the model. And that's the way it works in best-case scenarios, I would say. Yeah, I mean, I'll give you an example with Dak Prescott. Let's go back to him, okay? You know, a lot of teams in the National Football League line up in what we call three-by-one sets, 
Okay, you have a single receiver to the boundary, the short side of the field, and then you've got three receivers to the uh, wide side of the field. And normally, when teams do that, the, the three receivers to the wide side, they run a three-man, you know, combination route, a yep. concept that that's yep. a th- that involves all three. Most teams, most teams will have the quarterback read the trip side, but depending on coverage, often they'll look to the X receiver, what we call the X ISO receiver. He's the single receiver. And depending on who the receiver is, if it's truly one-on-one, they might throw to the X. Yep, yep. You know, a lot of teams do that. That's why the X receiver is so important in today's NFL. Yep. Well, in watching the Cowboys tape, Zach rarely threw last year. I'm going now. He rarely threw to the X, even when it was Amari Cooper. Now, my guess is he was coached. You know, here's the play. You work the play. So one could watch right. that tape and go, wow, Cooper won. Why didn't he throw it? Well, you don't know how he's coached. Yep. That's the thing. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, you know, it's always hard to know that. You know, there's no stat, I don't believe. Maybe you'll tell me there is because I know analytics keeps advancing literally by the minute. But I don't think there's no stat. There's a stat for balls that were not thrown that should have been thrown. It's coming. It's, it's abs- coming. It's absolutely well, coming. Well, Greg, this Eric Bradley, this is what I was going to ask you. You must get approached all the time by, given the amount of film and stuff you watch, by technology firms. So, for example, artificial intelligence is now the big rage today where you right. can literally take video. I didn't say football video, but you can take video and say it's a cat, it's a dog, it's this, it's that. How, how are am I right in that you're approached all the time by people that are building video based analysis that eventually could help supplement what you're doing in the NFL, like automatic uh, scheme classification right. uh, and stuff well, like really. that? I mean, I'm not, but uh, I'd love to be. You know, just to have the conversations. But um, you know, I guess to some degree, I'm probably a little more old school. I mean, I love watching the tape. You know, I think when I guess I'll say this. I have no problem with analytics at all. Like I said, more information, and I'm an information guy. I love to read. I love to, you know, I'm, I'm intellectually curious. But when there's 22 moving parts, sometimes I think you have to be careful about making sort of definitive judgments. For sure. Because there's always, you know, you could you could call a play, and the play works perfectly in terms of its design, but you're playing with your backup left guard, and he gets beat. I mean, right. I'm just giving, you know, a, I don't know if that's a good or bad example, but, you know, sometimes I think you have to be careful about that kind of stuff. Um, and, and, you know, and that's why at its core, I'm still a film guy. Yep, yep. So I, we understand, and we, we, we advocate, uh, you know, you know, modesty, I suppose, and humility in what these models can do. And I think the best analysts are actually the most humble analysts. They've learned from experience. Yeah, that- and, and believe me, when I watch tape, I always think I'm missing 10 things. But, you know, it's you know, the same funny. concept. Exactly. Same concept. Like, I'm a baseball guy. OK, so I, I remember reading back in the day, Bill James, when he first came out, uh-huh. when that was all brand new stuff. And I loved it. And I, I devoured all that stuff. You know, and now baseball has all these terms just because you can measure things that you couldn't measure before, like exit velocity. OK, right. so I was a baseball player. So back, you know, a long time ago, you know, the idea in baseball, if you're a hitter, was to hit the ball hard. Well, now we can just measure how hard a guy hits it. But the goal is still hit, is to still hit the ball hard. So 
you know, now we can call exit velo, and you know, or, or you know, and I know the game's changed. Now we have launch angle, and guys don't want to hit ground balls and all that stuff. So you know, the whole game has changed because now it's totally acceptable for a guy to strike out 180 times. <laughs> you know, back in the day, if a guy struck out 80 times, that was considered bad. Right. Now, I know I'm aging myself, and maybe I'm an old fogey, but I mean, there's a lot of this is just we have now ways ways to measure things, to give a name to things that have always existed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, Greg, talk to us a little bit about what you make of the younger quarterbacks in the league. And, and, and especially you said you're watching preseason tape. You know, there's this thing that people always say, you know, preseason doesn't mean anything. But you must be extracting some signal, some value out of the tape that you're watching. And especially for someone new, like, you know, for example, Kyler Murray right. or new coaches like Kingsbury, his coach, Kingsbury. Sure. What what inference what early, you know, lightly held inferences have you drawn? Well, most of the time when I watch a quarterback in particular in the preseason, I'm, I'm isolating the play of the quarterback. I'm not that concerned about scheme. I mean, look, in the preseason, every team runs a lot of the same basic route concepts. It's, it's, it's you know, and by the way, a lot of route concepts are basic, even in the regular season. It's just how teams get to to things. There's not a thousand route concepts. Right, it's just right. how teams get to them. Right. You know, so, so I'm studying quarterbacks individually and looking at, you know, isolating their traits. I think that's the way you have to evaluate quarterbacks. Okay. Um, you know, Kyler Murray's a little different. You know, look, what Cliff Kingsbury's done in the preseason, he hasn't done anything that's you, you go, wow, that's Cliff Kingsbury. I, I'm sure he's waiting for the season to do that. I, I'm, I think that He's going to have to figure some things out. The challenge for college coaches when they get to the NFL, particularly spread offensive coaches, becomes pass protection. Because in the NFL, they're not going to let you, you know, get five out all the time. You can't do those wide splits with offensive linemen like you do in college football mm-hmm. because the pressure will eat you up. So, you know, he's he's going to have to make some adjustments as well, and he'll be learning. Because when all said and done, guys, coaches coach what they know. Cliff Kingsbury's been in the same offense since he's been eight years old, and he started playing quarterback. <laughs> so he keeps coaching what he knows. Uh-huh. So he's going to have to learn. And and. Maybe in three years, and maybe he's very smart. I've never met him. Maybe we'll say, wow, he's great. You know, I, But there's some things in the NFL that he'll have to learn. And by the way, they played the Raiders in their last preseason game. And you know, John Gruden, I think, uh, decided he was going to say F you to, to Kingsbury and did some stuff that you don't normally see in preseason oh, games. Oh, is that right? What's an example of that? Well, Greg? just with some kind of pressure schemes yeah. that you don't normally see in preseason, you know, because he's basically saying, hey, look, this is the, welcome to the NFL, my friend. Okay. This is not the Big 12. That's fascinating. You know, okay. so, uh, you know, Daniel Jones does look very good, but I'm not one of those guys that makes definitive judgments off 25 dropbacks. Right. You know, all you can, I just watch the guy. This is what the track record is up to this point. He's performed very well. Here are the positive traits. This is what I like. But I'm not, you know, I'm not giving him a gold jacket yet. Um, you know, <laughs> of younger quarterbacks, I think the two guys that really stand out to me that I think will be very good players are Baker Mayfield and Sam Darnold. Okay. So the world's on top of Baker Mayfield, and if, if they're not, he's asking them to come around. Darnold, despite the attention early on and despite being in the New York market, is kind of overshadowed given Mayfield and Mahomes. Tell us, tell us what you're seeing in Darnold. Well, Darnold, I think, is, is one thing that stands out is his ball placement. He's very accurate. And I, and you can do everything right as a quarterback, but if you don't uh, throw it where you want to, then you've got nothing. Mm-hmm. And, and Darnold is, is very accurate. He's kind of a funky thrower. He can what, make what do you mean by funky throw? He, he makes a lot of throws off balance okay. uh, with his upper body and lower body not being in sync, which... 
I still struggle with at times, as I know their coaching staff struggles with. But you have to decide how much you want to try to correct that because he can make really good throws. So can I ask like you? That. Can I ask you a comparison? I'm not. I'm not. I don't know enough to make these kind of jumps. But I think maybe Roethlisberger has some of those qualities. And or Mahomes of, sort of seems oh, Mahomes like a different Mahomes animal sort, altogether. Well, yeah, I mean, obviously, is a little different because Mahomes yeah. is kind of a freakish thrower. Um, so he's a little different. The guy who. To, that I struggled with, and now, of course, I think he's unbelievable. But when he first started playing, because I'm a purist, I really struggled with with Philip Rivers, because he's a funky thrower too. Hmm. Okay. Now, Darnold's different because Rivers' lower body is really good. It's just the way he threw the ball. You know, I struggled okay. with, but I love Philip Rivers. Okay. Um, but Darnold's a little different because his upper body and lower body don't necessarily work together. He's an odd <laughs> guy in that he's mobile outside the pocket, but inside the pocket his feet are kind of heavy. Oh, so really he's an odd guy. Okay. But he's really accurate. And he does have a very good innate feel for pressure and how to move away from it, keep his eyes downfield, and make throws. So he's growing on me quite a bit. Okay, real, real quickly, Greg, let me just follow up on a couple of things. You, you mentioned earlier on about quarterbacks having you'd rather have them come out of college being a little more aggressive and maybe yes. they throw picks you know darnold was knocked especially in his last year at usc as having thrown a lot of picks but he was kind of carrying the offense by himself i took that to be the kind of aggression you probably want in a quarterback is, is he one of those examples um yeah darnold was not great his last year and and, and i did have some concerns with him coming out uh i'm a big believer in coaching and I think with Adam Gase there, uh, in, with the Jets, I think that that's a really good marriage. Okay. So, you know, I, I would expect Darnold to improve. Um, you know, they're, they're real aware of, of his strengths, his limitations, things they need to work on. I think Adam Gase is a really good orchestrator and designer of offense and will present defined reads and looks for Darnold. You know, I think that's so critical uh, f- for a quarterback, and that's what a coach should do, you know, at, at its core, every quarterback is a system quarterback. I know that term is used pejoratively as a negative. You know, oh, he's a system quarterback. Every quarterback is a system quarterback. Now, a, a lot of people believe that what separates some quarterbacks is their ability then to make plays outside of the structure of the offense. That de- You can have that reasonable debate as well. You know, Tom Brady and Drew Brees were not guys who made a lot of plays outside of structure. I think they're pretty good. Obviously, Mahomes can make plays outside of structure. Aaron Rodgers can make plays outside of structure. Darnold can. Baker Mayfield can. Um, you know, some people believe in today's NFL with the uh, expansion of, uh, you know, more detailed, subtle, nuanced pressure packages that your quarterback does have to be able to move. Um, again, another debate that can be had. Uh, but but I think with quarterbacks, you've got to look at their traits and their attributes first and foremost. Mm-hmm. So, Greg, uh, Kate, this is Eric Brother, uh, Kate asked you about the young quarterbacks. Let me bring up some older quarterbacks who are, you would argue, closer, to the, much closer to the end of their career than the near than the beginning, and I'd love to hear your thoughts. I'll just name the big five in my view. Breeze, Brady, Rivers, Roethlisberger, and Manning. So these are all well, obviously well-established quarterbacks, all been in the league over 15 years. Do you see any differences on tape when you look at the five of them and say, wow, this person's at least performing nearer to peak than any of the others? Um, I would say there's been subtle differences in a few of them. Um, I thought Brady was not quite as good last year and, and for a couple of reasons. And again, 
people will think that I'm being nuts because they won the Super Bowl. But, I, again, I'm just isolating the player. Brady has always been outstanding with what we call pocket movement, the ability to navigate within the pocket. And I think he wasn't quite as good at that a year ago. I think he wasn't quite as consistently accurate because he was so, so accurate through most of his career. Now, whether that means he's on the downside and declining, we'll have to wait until this year. Uh, I think Bree's game has always been so predicated on two things, an incredibly strong lower body and and pinpoint precise accuracy. Mm-hmm. I'm, I think his, his lower body, and it's just age, you know, you can work out all you want, and I know he works like a maniac. Um, you know, I think that he lost a little bit toward the end of last year. He's never a big-time thrower in terms of driving the ball with velocity, but I'm anxious to see if where he picks up this year. Yep. Um, Eli Manning has really struggled over the last number of years. He's, he's not a firm pocket guy. He falls away from too many throws. He's done that a lot throughout his career, and, you know, that'll catch up to you. And I think it, it catches up to him. But, I mean, look – you're going to look at his numbers, and he's won two Super Bowls. I mean, I know this might be a controversial statement, but I think Phillip Rivers is a better quarterback than, than Eli Manning, and I know that Eli Manning with the two Super Bowl wins probably gets in the Hall of Fame, and maybe Phillip Rivers doesn't because he's never even played in a Super Bowl. Amazing, amazing. You know, and, and Roethlisberger's in the same draft, so that's an amazing Manning-Rivers-Roethlisberger draft. I mean, that's... they're all still starting You know, they've never not been starting quarterback right. except for very, very early in their careers. Right. Right. Well, Greg, listen, we really appreciate your taking the time to be with us. It's always fascinating to talk with you. We look forward to seeing your work this season. Good luck getting it up and running over the next few weeks. Guys, I appreciate it. Thanks so much. Absolutely. That's Greg Cosell, senior producer for NFL Films. He's been there for 40 years. He's also the executive producer and analyst for ESPN's NFL Matchup. That is three quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We still have the fourth quarter ahead of us. Come back and join us after the break. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern. Cade Massey hosting this morning with Shane and Eric. That's Shane Jensen and Eric Bradlow. Audi Weiner will be back. Some combination of us are here every Wednesday morning. You guys can be here, too. Give us a ring. We have heard from Margie from Mississippi this morning. We can hear from some others. one 844 Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. You can email us businessradio at sarasxm dot com, or hit us up on Twitter at wmoneyball as our handle at wmoneyball is a way to reach out to us. We are just off the phone with Greg Cosell. It's always fun to talk with Greg. I thought it was great to hear his talk about. I'll call it both ends of the spectrum: the starting out guys and the guys near the yeah. end of their career, yeah. and how he kind of sees them, and also especially the older guys and how their evolution. Yeah, and I, I could see both Shane and I nodding our heads, like you're right. I mean, Brady's still great, but he's not as great. His movement in the pocket's not as good. Mm-hmm. You see throws where you're like, "Wow, the old Brady would well, have no, made and that I, and throw." I, I think it's sort of it's it, it's it's sort of you know I think. You know, probably we're we're looking at a couple years now. I mean, if if he even lasts a couple years of kind of average quarterbacking play, and, and from watching the superlative quarterback my whole career, it's going to be tough to it's going to be tough to see that. 
It's yep. going to happen. It's inevitable. Yep. It will happen eventually. So, fellas, we have a lot of ground to cover, a lot of different things going on in sports we haven't talked about yet. The, I just want to note that on the Premier League side of things, Man City drew last weekend, second game out of the box. Man City got drawn by Tottenham. I didn't see the match, but I understand it was like 15 shots on, fifteen shots versus four or something. Like the expected difference in that was much greater than a draw, but somehow Tottenham pulled it out. So Man City's off the top of the board. It's kind of fun for That's those exciting. Who, who are pulling I, for Because, yeah, no, others. I mean, I, when we last discussed this, and admittedly it was probably like a month ago when I was last in the studio, um, it was, you, you, you had this air of inevitability that Man totally, City was... Totally, yeah. even more than last year. So big news this weekend... College Football Week Zero. This was an innovation a few a few years ago. We're only a couple of years into it. The big opening weekend is next weekend, but it's off the ground with a few games so right exciting. away. And one very nice game. It's the best Week Zero game we've had so far. Miami and Florida are playing in Orlando. They're playing Miami and Florida playing this weekend. Yes, University of Florida and Miami of Florida are playing Week Zero game primetime Saturday night in Orlando. These are both very decent teams. Florida's top ten team, and Miami's you know maybe back. Manny Diaz down there in his first year as head coach. So we get a line off that here in a minute. But I'm sure Florida's favored, and it'll be fun. Great way. Great way to kick off the season. Seven and a half point favorite. Wow, it's on the other side of seven. That's interesting. It wouldn't be, you know, Florida's got their off season, off off field troubles this off season. Um, Dan Mullen's off to a little bit of a shaky start down there off the field at the very least. But the team has been back, and so we'll see how those two things come together. Florida and Miami, among a few other folks, kicking college football off this weekend. We're going to do our college football preview show next week. Two hours dedicated to college football. It's become a tradition here. We're into our third or fourth year. Ty Hildebrandt of Solid Verbal is going to drop down from the Bethlehem area and do some guest co-hosting with us, as he has been doing the last few years. So we'll jump into college football. One note on college football. Did y'all see the AP poll came out this this week? And the striking thing about the AP poll is that in the top ten, it is identical to the coaches' poll. There is yeah. perfect consensus, perfect consensus one through ten. And then even in the second ten, it's almost lockstep. But the top ten, there's no... There's no equivocation about who's supposed to be. And it's just to me, like, when was the last, uh, I mean, we've been doing this for a few years now. Have has it, have we been in studio ever when Alabama was not the number one going in? You know, Since Wharton Moneyball's existed? Probably not. No, no, no. This is only our sixth preseason. Yeah. So, no. And the la- this is the first time in those six years that Miami, that, that, that Alabama's not number so one. So let me ask you, just since obviously from the Massey Peabody system, their goal is predicting, in theory, the best teams right now. If we took those, what fraction of those top ten teams do we think will be in the top ten at the end of mm. the season? That's mm-hmm. not what they're trying to do. Well, but I'm asking you, if they are trying to do that, yeah. what, wh- like, how much variation? We talk about this all the time yeah, on the show. No, that's a great question. Like, is the answer eight out of ten of those will be in the top ten? Or is, is that way too high? So the the premise is wrong, unfortunately, because this is not a pure power ranking kind of thing from the polls. They, If you hear the voters talk about this, they will explicitly say things, well, you know, A&M we really think is good, but do you think they're going to be there at the end of the year? Have you seen the schedule they have to play? So right. they, they they have them, this kind of a blend, because A&M, you know, they, that's actually, this, actually, A&M looks more like a power ranking here because they're coming in at 11 and 12. Nobody thinks they're going to be the 11th team in the bowl standings, I don't think, given the record, the schedule they have to play. 
Yeah, but, so you're bringing up an important point, which is, so let me ask a, then a, a, more, a different question. Let's say we took the, the power rankings right now. We look at the power rankings at the end of the season, and we cor- just simply correlated the two. How high would that correlation be? Like, in other words, are there massive outliers that happen? Like, if you go down the list here, Utah's at 14 right now. What you're really how talking could, about is kind of like a Spearman ranking. Yeah. Like, like it's like, right. like the ra- how, how, how correlate the yeah, ranks, right? Yeah, okay. exactly. Yeah. So, for example, if I told you at the end of the year that Utah ends up being number three, five in the nation, how shocking would it be that a 14... Not what, shocking. Not so, that shocking. Not shocking. Okay. So one, in the history of the college football playoff, we're, we're done five years. Is that right? Five years, four years. A, a team from outside the top ten, the preseason top ten, has made the playoff every year so oh, far. Oh, that's all right. So, yeah. that's, so one, all, that's a good all, piece of data. That's already, what I was essentially asking. And our, I mean, if you look at Massey Peabody preseason versus end of season, the dispersion in our rankings, the variance, and the, basically the era in our rankings – it's a it's a lot. It's well, plus another, or minus that's the 10 other question points. I was asking. Right. So you got to know that you've got some error. Now it's not biased. It's just noisy. You got to so know you that, got some that's error. your that's the error in your entire rankings of however many teams, not the top ten necessarily. Right. That's correct. Though we it's not dramatically different. It's not dem- dramatically different um, from the top to the bottom. So by the way, the if you look at the if you look at power rankings, the FPI ESPN's the FPI is as good as any out there. Better than virtually anything out there so it's an easy way go to espn look up football power index very good set of numbers it, it tracks closely same similar methodology to massey peabody and they have a very similar top top 10 um it's not the it's not identical oregon's higher here auburn's a little higher here oklahoma's a little bit lower here yeah but again you look but, at the thing that sticks out to me is I'll, I'll just cheat and go to the top 11 um six of those teams are in the sec yeah. so what does that mean for back to your comment kate about the goal of it Six teams of they're not all going to the football playoffs. As a matter of fact, it, you can imagine it being hard to be. I mean, maybe two, maybe two, maybe mm-hmm. two. But but, but in, in the FPI, three of the top four are and right. These, and, these, right. And, and with the other rankings, um, at least theoretically, because they're just kind of subjective. That the, things like strength of schedule could be built in. By that's the why voters, the right? saying it was a blend. Whereas yeah. this power index, power index is straight up pure. That's right. But what you need to do is you run the power index, and then you run a simulation, and that that tells right. you yeah. what you need to know. Exactly. And we will have, hopefully, God willing, and the creek don't rise, as they say, we're going to have uh, both the power rankings and the simulation results from Massey Peabody, and we can talk about that. And one of the things we put out, one of the main things we put out every August is. Here's our power rankings contrasted with our forecast for how they're going to end up, and that difference is a reflection of strength of schedule. It's, mm-hmm. In our in our opinion, the best measure of strength of schedule. You can literally say the expected degradation in their one loss record as a result of their. Let me ask you a schedule. question. Yeah. Uh, even though we're going to talk about it next week uh, about Massey Peabody, do you guys take into account? Let's imagine. Let's just imagine. I'm, I'm coming up with a scenario. Let's imagine Michigan ends up with a bad start. And is six and two, six and three. So they're out of the playoffs. It's clear. Would you? I hate to say they're not trying, but is there anything in your model that says a team is kind of out of contention for a major bowl, and therefore the goal of the coach might be different, and therefore they won't play up to their power rankings because there's a different objective function. Is that in any? It's almost like a second order effect yeah. of their strength of schedule. Interesting. We've I, I don't we've never looked at that, and it's it, you could look at it empirically and just ask: Is there some point at which a team's performance drops below expected as a result of how they've Correct. achieved or not achieved? Mm-hmm. And you can even draw some wrinkles in there, like some bad losses, like 
things that they didn't do that really pushed them down there. The one place anybody ever talks about that that I've heard, because I, 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 you don't hear about that as much in college as you do in professional sports, I would say. But in college, they talk about it around bowl games. You know, teams that are just they're they're disappointed with the bowl they end up in, or they didn't quite make the playoff, and and team, they they say this about Georgia last year in the Sugar Bowl is that they 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 were disappointed about not making the the playoff, and so they didn't really show up. All right, we'll cover more college football next time around. We've got a few other topics we want to hit. Eric, you had an observation about the NBA college college hoops and translating into NBA. Yeah, so this is the first time I'm sure it's been done every year, but maybe it's the first time I paid attention to it. So they asked all of the people drafted in the first round of the NBA draft to the players themselves the players themselves yeah this was a so this is i want to get to that in a second mm-hmm. but they asked the players themselves who you think will be the best pro among the players drafted and of course the most one of the most hyped people in like the last 20 years is Zion Williamson who right. was drafted first by the Pelicans um he only got 5% of the vote the the, the benchmark is Career performance. Correct. Okay. Correct. And Cam Reddish, who was also on Duke's team, got drafted 10th by the Hawks, got the highest percentage at 19%. Hmm. So I think most people were shocked that asking the players themselves who they've played against, (laughs) who they think is the best, Cam Reddish slipped all the way to 10 and Zion Williamson wasn't even in the top three or four. Mm-hmm. He was down at 5%. Wow. So I was just wondering, I, I asked this to Cade. I was excited about the show day for lots of reasons, to be back, but to ask Cade, do you ever see that as being part of an evaluation system? Like, why not ask the players themselves yeah. after they finish their college careers a bunch of questions like this and then bring those into the mathematical models? I, I think why a, not? I think it's a, it's, a, it's a great idea. Well, just generally in scouting... Right. Do we talk to competitors of the players we're interested in? And my impression is, I'm sure that happens some. My impression is this doesn't happen a lot and that at least it's not a major focus. And you always got trouble with access to folks and confidentiality and truth telling and all that. But as many different angles as scouts try to get on prospects, that seems like a valuable one. That's interesting. Why Why do you think this would be? But So, uh, by the way, I, I think prior yeah. to the freshman season, Reddish was the bigger prospect. That is correct. I mean, I mean, well, I mean one, th- one thing, I don't think this is necessarily a dominant version, but, you know, they, they, get to, they do get to know who these players are going to, right? So, you know, it could be something like, well, Hawks the Pelicans are the ones that draft Pelicans, Zion. Pelicans, yeah. Pelicans. The Pelicans are the ones that draft Zion Williamson. Maybe I don't see as good of a career for yeah. him because of that. I think so. This is the, this is just what I've heard. I don't know that it's true in any way. We all question what is Zion Williamson's position in the NBA. It's like what is his position? I see. Like is okay. he so he's six? They list him at six seven, yeah. which means he's really six 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 five. Is he a like? Is he Charles Barkley? Which would right. obviously be great. Charles Barkley, one of the greatest players of all times. He's. I mean, is he going to be a power force? He plays the four at six foot six. Yeah. I mean, what is his position in the NBA? So, we but, know where Cam uh, Reddish is going but, to play. Okay, so on the one hand, um, that seems a reasonable question, but we do have these exceptions of players who seem to be tweeners, but if they're sufficiently, they're sufficiently something. You know, whether it's well, by the way, I'll say or, Zion Williamson was voted the most athletic. Yeah, I mean, with that kind of athleticism, I mean, look, PJ Tucker, for example. Is a guy who came out. He was a, he was he was one of my favorite all time Longhorns. But he's kind of a he's a small guy, especially for he kind of a, has a around the basket game. Is he really going to have a career in the NBA? He almost didn't, but then he stuck, and now he's this, he has been this valuable member of the team. And he's but he's kind of adjusted his game over time. We shouldn't think of these guys as having 
being fixed. I know, but, but pe- I know, I agree with that. But people are asking, will Zion Williamson be the best player available? And they're saying he's going to have to do a lot of adjustment. Is okay. what I'm, I, I, that's okay. what I'm okay. reading into it. Okay. I think it's interesting because you know, cl- it, it, to the extent that he's being dinged because of that uncertainty about his position, it's interesting to me that his contemporaries are the ones kind of dinging him, right? I mean, that's you would, the point. I you, found you diagnostic. Uh, I mean, it's kind of fa- fascinating. You, you'd kind of think that, like, you know, coaches or order owners or whoever's doing the drafting decisions would be more likely to build in that uncertainty than, well, say, so, the, his so Shane, contemporaries would be. you're bringing up why be. I asked Cade the question, because, yeah. you know, whenever you bring in information into a predictive model, obviously you don't want them perfectly correlated, because if there's perfectly correlated, there's no value in the information. So the part I'm bringing up, which I'm glad Cade found it excited, because he, you know, Massey Peabody and all this stuff he does in evaluation and rankings, why is the NBA draft drafting him first, but the players have Cam Reddish, who's 10 as... So to me, it's that I'm very interested in the source of the difference between why a guy who by his peers was ranked first is 10th by the actual in the actual draft. I find that interesting. That means there's an opportunity for information gain there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Eric, the, you're the golf guy here, and the FedEx Cup is happening this weekend. I, do people care about this? So it's, it's, the field has been cut down over the last few weeks, the final 30 now. There's a lot of money at stake. This is $15 kind of, million. Their attempt to, you know, they bumped the PGA out of August, and so this is kind of, to some extent, what it replaces it. Uh, they have a new format yep. now. So instead of this complicated points thing where you couldn't really well, see... Well, there was a complicated points thing up until this week. Right. But they've translated the points into strokes. So they've got... This is the only tournament you'll watch where on the first tee, first day, there's a leaderboard that matters. Well, that's why Justin Thomas... The, the joke now is Justin Thomas is in first place. He won last week's tournament. Is that he's never woken up on a Wednesday night with a two-stroke lead in a tournament because <laughs> right. tournaments start on Thursday, but he's got a two-stroke lead. So, Eric, how how far down the leaderboard could you go and still think you have a shot to win? Like, how many strokes back can you start a tournament? So just, this is nothing right. something's never happened before. So mm-hmm. just quickly for our listeners, the leader, Justin Thomas, ranked number one right now in the FedEx, starts at minus 10. Kepka, I believe, is second. He might be third now. Is The next person's minus eight, then minus seven, minus six. The twenty six to thirty, the last people in are at even par, so they're ten oh, hold strokes on. So they just, back. They, they, what was this transformation from points to strokes? It was weird. It goes ten minus ten minus eight minus seven minus six minus five. Just according then to a your block, stat- according to your FedEx ranking Rank, and points, ranking not point level, not point level. So it's a weird, ranking. it's a really compressed. It was literally odd. winner take all to a slot. It's an ordinal thing. Okay, yeah. so, so but literally it goes ten eight seven six five and then a bucket at four, a bucket at three, a bucket at two, a bucket at one, and I a bucket see. at even par. Okay, well that's right. maybe not crazy. It keeps everybody. I mean, a, a person could come theoretically ten strokes back with four rounds to play. Yeah, it, it's theoretically possible. You have to jump. You, you know, well, here's the question: it's only twenty nine people. I know, but here's the question: No, no, <laughs> not twenty twenty nine pretty good people. But yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's, or another way to think yeah. about it: There's twenty five people ahead of you already. But here's yeah. the question to think about. How many golf tournaments, I know it's not the same question, but it's some data we have. How many golf tournaments have been won by 10 strokes? Not very many. So now that person has to, it's even harder. I, this is a very only, good point. It, yeah. it's, Are it's you hard. Tiger Woods at Pebble Beach? Yeah. And if you're not, I, you're not going to win this. Yeah, like, so, all right, everybody in that bottom five, here's what we know with a fact. It's yeah. a very nice they point. They must be yeah. Justin Thomas by 10 strokes. Yeah. We know yeah. that number yeah. for sure. And here's the, our probability works in. 
and they have to beat Brooks Kepka by eight strokes, and they have to beat Rory McIlroy yeah, by six yeah. strokes. And I'm like, oh my god, no, how's no, right, that going right, to happen? Right. You know, th- this is this th- we talked about simulation earlier in the show. You really need a simulation. So I'm sure this is what the golf betters are doing because it's hard to handicap this thing any other way because it's such an odd thing. So a simulation would be really helpful. But here's what's interesting about that. Here's where I was thinking last weekend as I was watching the BMW. So the first thing in your mind is, well, minus five. Maybe someone five strokes back in. But then your mind creeps like, well, but why five? Why not four? Yeah. But then once you're at four, you're like, yeah, but why not three? And then once you're there, you're like, well, maybe any of them can win it. <laughs> and so I, I, I'm just saying it's easy to creep downwards yeah. and say, you know, what's so hard and fast about five back? Why not six back? All right, fellas, we have the home stretch of in front of us. It's Warden Moneyball's over under. Eric, we are low on time, but we got a handful of these. You want to lead us through them? Well, I'm going to start with one you already asked me about. And I'm going to put you guys on the spotlight since we just talked about golf. Let's start with Tiger Woods, and this is obviously an interesting over under. <laughs> um, point five. Will Tiger Woods be at the President's Cup? So I will start with Shane Jensen. You mean not as captain, but as a player? No, we know he's a, the captain. He will be at the President's Cup. Thank you. Will he play at the President's Cup? Yes or no? We'll start with Shane. I say that he is not going to pick himself for the President's Cup. I think he, I think the optics on that would be strange enough, and I think you know he probably, you know, values rest a lot <laughs> at this point in his career. So I, I think he does not do that. So I'm going to take the under. I'm going to take under as well. I think he's more aware than anybody what kind of shape he's in and the trouble he's had with his physical part of his game and um it seems like that's bad so let's go under and i'll go over obviously i already said i was over let's go since we have the u.s open we obviously have paul anacone on 0.5 u.s open championships for novak djokovic so you you know basically it's djokovic versus the field Mm -hmm. according to this not basically it is just to give you an idea right now he's plus 110 so almost even pretty much even nadal 350 federer plus 550 um so we'll start with Cade this time. Do you want Djokovic or do you want the field? It feels inevitable, and my inclination in sports is that when things feel inevitable, take the other side. And But I'm, that's also kind of what my heart is. But for both reasons, I'll take the other side. I'll go under on Djokovic for .5. I'm going to go under because he had a slight elbow issue at the Cincinnati Masters in his semifinal match. He had to have a timeout and have the trainer come. This is the same elbow that put him out for 12 months. I just have a sense that he may not be 100% physically fit to play seven matches at five games. I don't mean he's not cardio. I'm just saying I'm worried. I'm building an injury. I'm going the under. I'm not going to bet against Eric on something tennis related. He's got inside I'm injury the, I'm, I'm ta- I'm ta- you know, it, it, it's a little bit cheating because I'm using the ordering of how we're doing this, yeah. but I'm taking the under. That's, okay. that's why we wrote Just one, another one. Uh, this relates to Greg Cosell. It's nice to tie these over-unders to the guests we had. Who's going to have a better season in using QBR as better season, Sam Darnold or Baker Mayfield? You're first, Aaron. Wow. That's a really tough one. I've always thought that Darnold was the best quarterback in that draft. I'm so I'm I'm going to stay with that horse and I'm going with Sam Darnold. I'm going to take Mayfield. I think, you know, I I I think uh I I I just I, I he was more impressive last season um to me and uh yeah, I'm going to take Mayfield. I'm going to take Mayfield as well. He's got a better surrounding cast as much as we try to clean everything up and make mm-hmm. the QBR just better about line the QB. Better too. Better everything than they have at the Jets, and I think that strongly favors him. All right, just one last one, or one last two. We have two teams. The Cardinals won three games last year. The over-under is five and a half. So 
this the Kingsbury Kingsbury Murray pair get them to six wins or more this year? So we'll start with Shane Jensen. Do the Cardinals win six games this year? Yeah, no, I know. Um, I say no. I think they, I, even though regression of the mean is is pushing them in that direction, um, I say they do not. I say I'm taking the under. I'm going to take under as well. I'm, I'm, I'm again. I'm going with my heart here because I'm anti sooner quarterbacks. But <laughs> rook, rookie quarterback, rookie coach, that's not a great combination. As Shane says, regression to the mean would say they might get there, but I'm going to short them. And I'm going under mainly because of the surrounding cast. I don't think he has enough around him to get it done. Too much pressure is going to be on him, and I don't think he's ready. All right, fantastic. That's been four quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We do this live every Wednesday, 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern. Come back and join us next time. Want a good shout-out and a big thank you to Martin Nawaga. Martin is our new sound engineer. Holding down the board, bringing us up out of the bottom of the hours. Glad to have Martin in the family. We'll be back next time. Between now and then, enjoy your sports.